Hi, welcome back to On the Nose, the Jewish Currents podcast. I'm Ariel Angel, the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents, and today I'm joined by two very special guests based in Germany, Emily Dischebecker and Michael Sapir. This is part of a two-part episode focusing specifically on Germany. This episode, we're going to be talking really about the overall dynamics around memory culture and Jews and as that relates to politics around Israel in Germany. And then next time we are going to be talking about the crackdown on Palestinian identity in German media and German public life. So I'm just going to kick it to both of you just to tell us a little bit about yourselves. Emily, do you want to start? Uh, sure. I'm Emily Schubecker. I'm based in Berlin most of the time, currently in upstate New York. I grew up in Germany, and I've also lived in the U.S. and Lebanon, and have worked as a journalist, film producer, curator, public programs, and currently working on a book about the German anti-anti-Semitism discourse of the last couple of years. Uh, I'm Michael Sapir. I'm based in uh, Leipzig in East Germany. Uh, I grew up in Israel, and I'm currently a writer and uh, editor of a leftist student newspaper. I'm a left organizer, and I'm part of a group of oppositional uh, Jewish Israelis living in Leipzig called Yid, which is short for Jewish Israeli descent in German. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, we have a great interview with Michael on the site by Isabel Fry, and you can find it there. We'll put it in the show notes. I I wanted to talk to you guys today because there has been a lot of activity around these issues in Germany recently. We're not going to get into everything here, especially as I noted, we're going to have another episode. But around Shireen Abu Akhla's killing, there were a lot of protests in Germany and they were very severely repressed. And then Emily, you put on a conference with some others in Berlin called the Hijacking Memory Conference. And that conference, there was a fair bit of controversy, which Josh Leifer, who was in attendance, wrote about on Jewish Currents, but we'll talk a little bit about that today. And also there's the Documenta Art Fair that's been going on and has also been a site of controversy. So I wanted to, maybe before we get into all of these layers of different events and different <laughs> different headaches <laughs> for all of you in Germany, I wanted to maybe zoom out and see if we could talk a little bit or try to set the stage for Americans who may not know exactly what the dynamics are. I know that it's very, very difficult in most of the Western world to get accountability for Israel at the governmental level. But I wanted to hear specifically about what makes it particularly difficult in Germany, since I know that it's been a little more intense over there than than in most other places. And Emily, maybe I'll start with you. Yeah, I think the, the most important thing to the sort of most distinctive thing about the German-Jewish relationship obviously the Holocaust, but more recently, perhaps, that we have one central body called the Zentralrat, the Central Committee for the Jews in Germany, that represents Jewish life in Germany vis-a-vis the state and encompasses all the Jewish communities in, in Germany. So this body, per contract with the state, is the official representative. And so that means that there's very little sense of there being Jews outside of the Zentralrat's position and that their positions might defer, particularly those who are on the left or to the left of the Zentralrat, which would be probably, I mean, I would assume 70 to 80% of American Jews would be to the left of the Zentralrat. It's pretty like fairly conservative, and I would say in some cases also right wing. So that is sort of the first thing that makes the German Jewish conversation what it is. But there are the Jews represented by the Zentralrat are only half the Jews living in Germany. So what's happened in the last few years is there's been a lot of Israeli Jewish, I would say, exiles who have moved to Germany. And the situation in Israel and Palestine has also gotten worse in some way. So that's been a factor for Jews to question their relationship to Israel. And 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 this has run a foul or rather run into problems with the Zentralrat's position, which wasn't always this way. It, uh, the Zentralrat used to try to kind of distance itself from the policies of Israel, but in the last few decades, particularly in the last few years, certainly hasn't. So what's happened since 2015 is that when a large number of refugees from the Arab world came, from Syria in particular, 
the Zentralrat said that they were for upper limits on immigration from that part of the world because there was a problem, an ethnic problem of anti-Semitism in that part of the world. And I think that sort of has set the tone for some of what has happened since. The other important factor in Germany is that we have, for the first time in many decades, like a real neo-fascist party in parliament, and we also have a rise in far-right terrorism that is very organized and has networks that extend into the army, the police, the intelligence services, and obviously parliament. And this is sort of like consistent discoveries of right-wing terror and connections to the parliamentarians, be it through people who work as researchers, be it through whatever else. So, And obviously this right-wing party, the AfD, has a wing of the party or has certain politicians who will say inflammatory things about the Holocaust, diminishing its importance, but also will say anti-Semitic things, globalists, yada, yada, the sort of alt-right usual thing. But moreover, they've figured out in the last few years that in order to not kind of absolutely run afoul of German sensibilities around Jews, they should be pro-Israel. And indeed, maybe they just are for other reasons, um, as we know with the alt-right in other countries where there's some, you know, admiration for a a politics of ethno-nationalism, the Richard Spencer type of like, I'm a white Christian Zionist or whatever. So I'd say basically in the last few years, we have the rise of like far-right, xenophobic, racist politics in Germany. And at the same time, we have a collusion, I would say, between the official representatives of Jewish life in Germany with a very broad spectrum of political players who are centering the problem of imported anti-Semitism from the Arab Muslim world. And and, and this sort of this phenomenon uh, changes name, right? It'll be migrant anti-Semitism, imported anti-Semitism, Muslim anti-Semitism. Then it became post-colonial anti-Semitism. And now we're at the stage of like where left-wing anti-Semitism is the issue. And then, of course, with left-wing anti-Semitism, you get left-wing Jews who are like currently being sort of almost at the center of the current right now campaign of, I would say, German kind of conspiratorial anti-anti-Semitism, because it has very anti-Semitic traits, the accusations made against left-wing Jews being basically kind of a conspiracy to undermine the German sense of itself vis-a-vis Israel, which is a sort of mirror Right. I mean, there's a lot to to dig into here. I, I wonder, actually, if, Michael, you could jump in about the experience of Jews kind of being a, a flashpoint in this, particularly left-wing Jews, both from your work with Yid, and also maybe you could tell us a little bit about, for example, the School for Unlearning Zionism and what happened there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, maybe I'll start with, with School for Unlearning Zionism. Uh, this was a project of some uh, Jewish Israelis in Berlin. It's actually, I think, an ongoing group, but this was like a public project of theirs that was going to get some support from a, an art school in Berlin. And they, they wanted to have public talks with some speakers on these topics, especially Jewish Israelis, but not only. And some right-wing journalists caught wind of this and made a stink out of it, and it escalated very quickly and led to this art school pulling its support, which was very modest support, but just suddenly pulling it and not even telling the people involved. And there was, you know, this whole big scandal and you have like these uh, anti-Semitism watchdogs who have like a list of anti-Semitic events and you'll just find, you know, like gravestones smashed or or graffitied, a man in a yarmulke um, being attacked with a knife, and then the School for Unlearning Zionism, just in, in line with these as if it was another anti-Semitic incident. As far as what we've experienced in Leipzig, it's much more small scale like this. I mean, it is one of the 10 biggest cities in Germany, but it's, it's kind of, it's a bit provincial. And here you have a lot of these like micro kind of scene conflicts within the left. So I think that's maybe something worth getting into a little bit that the, one of the most unusual things about the situation in Germany is that you have a significant faction on the, um, radical left, at least in sociological terms. I mean, I think politically there's a lot to question here about whether they, they're still part of the radical left, but in ra- radical left spaces, they, they'll call themselves communists and anarchists and things like that. And there is something called anti-Deutsch, anti-Germans, which is a, a movement within the left that has over time developed this 
basically neoconservative pro-America, pro-Israel position that can be really extreme. Like for, for those of us coming from Israel, the things they say sound a lot like the, the right and far right in Israel, not even just like centrist uh, Israeli politics or, you know, left Zionist, but re- really like extreme anti-Palestinianism. And you'll have things like spaces, like you know, party spaces or, or bars or whatever, just any kind of leftist spaces, also political spaces, where if you come in with a, with a kafia or any kind of uh, recognizable symbol of Palestine solidarity, you'll you know be asked to leave sometimes pretty aggressively and you you have within the left this faction that will just basically aggressively attack any any display of pro-palestinian sentiment as if it were the most extreme anti-semitism so it, it actually can be very hard for jewish leftists to to find a place in germany because the normal left spaces are not all but often have this kind of presence in it you know you'll go into this in, into an info shop and see a big israel flag there and you know for those of us who especially those of us who grew up in israel like this is you know just like not something that we can uh, feel comfortable with and feel at home with it's a very interesting situation i mean like i was in berlin for the conference which we'll talk about later in this episode. And, you know, a friend of mine told me about a leftist space in Berlin called About Blank and took me to their website. And all you see on the website is a calendar of events and an FAQ just about Palestine and Israel and about their relationship, them trying to basically hold a space together, both for anti-Deutsch, the anti-German faction that you were describing that has kind of come around to being pro-Israel as a way of not being anti-Semitic. And people taking a more anti-colonial, anti-imperial kind of approach. And it's kind of mind-blowing, especially because of the way that things work on the left in most other places. But I think what's even more interesting is the way that these kinds of politics have been mainstreamed. So, Emily, you were starting to talk a little bit about the ways that, of course, the far right, who's very anti-Semitic, has picked up a sort of pro-Israel politic, but that this kind of exists across the left. And we have this in the Green Party, which is sort of, I don't know how you would describe it, left liberal. Does that sound right? Or Yeah. That is also very invested in these politics. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the ways that this politic has been adopted across the board. Sure. The political spectrum issue, or the fact that this cuts across the political spectrum, I think is probably manifests as an example. The best example of this would be the um, BDS resolution that was passed by the Bundestag, the German parliament in 2019, which basically declared the methods of BDS to be anti-Semitic. As the resolution says, it says, because it unequivocally conjures up the Nazi boycott of Jews, Jewish stores, Jewish businesses. And this was a resolution that was first introduced by the AfD. It's a non-binding, legally non-binding one, which actually wanted to make BDS, in fact, illegal. This is the right wing party. just Yeah, the right wing party. Yeah. And then the all the other parties, pretty much. I mean, the Greens, the, like the, all the centrist, we call them the bourgeois parties, the Bürgerliche Parteien, <laughs> the acceptable parties, did a resolution together, drafted one together, passed a resolution together that then yeah, declared the methods of BDS to be anti-Semitic and demanding that cultural institutions or any basically any publicly funded institutions don't give space to the BDS movement. And effectively, all culture and education in Germany is publicly funded. So that would just mean, yeah, not having, like, it's basically amounts to deplatforming people who support BDS. And of course, because it's not legally binding, it's been kind of overzealously interpreted and led to a lot of insecurity and fear. But the reason that this can catch on across basically the political spectrum, I think, is that if you put the name fighting anti-Semitism on something, people will feel very uncomfortable questioning it for good reason. And what I was trying to say earlier is that the sort of unquestioningness of it is essentially because it's like the identity of how to be a decent German is to fight anti-Semitism. And so, yeah. Well, it seems it seems like what's been really interesting for me as I've been learning about this stuff and mostly from the two of you and, and some other folks is that it really is not really about Jews so much. I mean, it's really very much about Germans. And in fact, I think I heard a a story recently where 
each German state has a kind of like an anti anti-Semitism czar. Not all of them, but many not of all them. of them, but many of them. And then there is kind of a, a national one, right? Felix Klein. Right. And when people have complained to them about certain kinds of enforcement, they're like, well, can't you understand how it is for us as Germans? Like, don't you understand what that, that we need to do this? And I wonder if you two could talk maybe a little bit about that, even just personally, what it's been like to kind of navigate the German psyche on these issues. It really seems like Jews in Germany are a symbol. They're not flesh and blood individuals with a range of ideas. They're kind of an ideal. They're like an ideal victim on some level. And so, you know, living Jews really complicate that picture very significantly in these ways that we've been talking about. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about that. So the, the thing about the uh, anti-Semitism czars or anti-Semitism commissioners is that they're called commissioners for Jewish life and against anti-Semitism, which already shows the inherent conflation of the two. Like anti-Semitism and Jews is just, that's there's, there's nothing more really beyond that. And there's the reduction is inherent to that. I think I've gotten used to it finally, but it's taken me a while because this is something I didn't experience as a child growing up in Germany. And then I left for many years from basically came back in my 30s. And that Germans so much centered everything around their feelings about it and did so kind of openly. I think the first time was like some Green Party politician was like, well, of course, it's worse for me as the daughter of an SS officer or whatever to have to deal with anti-Semitism then it like then obviously you're not as sensitized to it but of course you know that was like some random local politician on Twitter but the anti-Semitism commissioner the federal one Felix Klein has actually said you know I wish Israelis would be more sensitive to the German sense of historical responsibility the left-wing Israelis uh, to which I was you know wanted to say <laughs> suggest something concrete Felix like should they have re-education trips to like Bergen Belsen like I don't know <laughs> what do you have in mind because that would be kind of that like there's it's kind of like under Trump there's nothing that is funny or satirical or satirizable about how far and how kind of out of touch some of these manifestations of like German emotional big feelings can be and how alienating that is because it, everything is kind of possible in that way. It sort of feels like a almost a kind of mass hysteria at times. And I'm not saying that anti-Semitism is, but the kind of fear of uh, losing control of what the German relationship to itself can be, having figured out a kind of formula for redemption through support for Israel as a Jewish state. So then anybody who tampers with equal rights or anything like that is automatically kind of puts that on shaky ground. It, so it basically is an issue of German identity politics at the end of the day, right? And, and another interesting aspect of this, I think, is some scholars have worked on this, and I've been reading this scholarship recently about uh, Holocaust education for migrant youth, where they take them to the sites of concentration camps. And this is also sometimes punitive, I think. Like there's various sort of aspects of this, right? This is like regular education. And then there's like, you've done something wrong. Maybe you did graffiti or you uh, you had a fight with somebody or you said a slur. I don't know, but there's definitely like an aspect of this that's sort of re-education. But what this one scholar was writing about was that the guides at these concentration campsites, these memorials now, uh, really get upset when migrant youth identify with the victims and not the perpetrators. Their, their response to learning about Nazi crimes against Jews is expressing fear that Germans could do similar things to them. And that is so part of the pact of becoming German for migrants. And Germany has 40% population of migration background, which I think is sort of the larger like, kind of uh, spasm of culture war that's the background to that is Germany's changing identity in that way. That German guides in these concentration camp uh, memorial sites would be very angry uh, about this because you're not supposed to identify with the victims. You're supposed to identify as potential future perpetrators. I was just thinking that the, the piece that Emily spoke to before about the role of the um, Central Council of the Jews of Germany is, is actually important to all this because it kind of enables this debate to be very, very much structured around German institutions and German feelings. 
while at least imagining itself to be responding to the Jewish community, but like it's responding to this official body set up by the state that represents at best the the organized religious community, but in no way can be said to actually represent all the Jews in Germany because it's it's literally the the umbrella organization of the synagogues in Kehilot. It's not something that like I as a as a non-practicing person of Jewish background have any influence on. And even even within the organized community, it's really unclear how decisions are made there um, to, to appoint people. It's like it's not a democratic, transparent representative body, but it gives this institutional veneer of like here we have you know, we have a speaker of the Jewish pe- for the Jewish people that we are we're responding to what they're saying. So we're responding to their fear from immigrants. We're responding to their uh, identification with the state of Israel. And I mean, I think this is thin, but I think it's it's a, a just a piece of how Germans can at least tell themselves that they're responding to Jewish needs when really these needs are constructed already, you know, institutionally in a way that's that's convenient and fits into the way Germany works and and into you know German society and self understanding, right? And and there's two things that I would hope that you guys can speak to. I mean, one is also about the kind of strange makeup of the German Jewish community itself and the high incidence of converts from German non Jewish background and the extent to which people who become rabbis in Germany many of them are of German non Jewish background and. Of course, it's a very sensitive subject, and it's not to suggest that converts are not Jews, but it does seem that this is also part of a particular kind of dynamic, as well as the influx of Jews from the former Soviet Union. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about about that dynamic as well and how that affects the communal politics. It seems to me that a big part of this is that the German perception of Jewishness is very flat. It's very much about squishing a few different things together. So that's uh, Judaism as a religion, the Jewish people and our you know history of trauma, specifically our trauma at German hands, and the state of Israel. So all these things are kind of identified in a way that isn't really separated out a lot in, in the public perception and the public debate about this. You very often will have these categories just being mixed for one another as a way to, to speak sensitively about, uh, about people of, of Jewish background. People will speak of people of Jewish belief or of Jewish religion, which of course doesn't apply to all of us and doesn't, you know, map onto who are at, who are actually victimized by anti-Semitism, specifically in Germany, especially like Nazi anti-Semitism and like other forms of, of Jew hatred was really not about the religion. So that leads to the situation where you can kind of convert into this history of trauma and then you can speak for, I'm individualizing this and it's not an individual issue, but like a person could be speaking for the victims of their own grandparents, just through this act of conversion, and I, I also would not, you know, want to call into question anyone's sincerity in converting or any or the legitimacy of, of a person claiming Jewishness through conversion. But within this context of Jewishness being understood in a very simplistic way, pushing together all these different categories creates this problem that that people are speaking basically for for others or for an experience that they're not part of in the same way. What's also more common than conversion, I think, is sort of a kind of coquetterie, a kind of insinuation of Jewishness, right? That happens a lot of the time. People will call their child Shlomo or whatever, like, you know, some right-wing journalist at Die Welt, his son's middle name is Shlomo. You'll add David to your middle name, like just, just to insinuate that you might be Jewish, in particular if you work in the burgeoning anti-anti-Semitism field where there's a lot of jobs for experts, but a little a little insinuation of Jewishness goes a long way. The anti-Semitism commissioner of Berlin, Samuel Salzborn, people assume that he's Jewish because his name is Samuel. And Felix Klein as well. Felix Klein. And Felix but, Klein has, has not really done that much to dispel, dispel that. that. Yes. No. That's the thing. You don't dispel it. You play the violin. You know, you do things that seem Jewish to Germans. And then, I mean, he does. All he does, he's like talks about anti-Semitism and how much he loves playing the violin, and people think he's Jewish. And there, and there is, there's also a related phenomenon. I don't know how much the overlap is, but of these, you know, very much non-Jewish people in the anti-anti-Semitism space claiming anti-Semitism when when they're attacked and criticized. So I, I, I 
don't remember exactly who this was. It could have been Michel Blume, the um, anti-anti-Semitism guy for the state of Baden-Württemberg, who's a, a particularly clowny uh, commissioner on Twitter. Might not have been him, though. But you, you'll see like these people being criticized often by Jews and then being like, this is anti-Semitism. How, could you, how dare you criticize my anti-anti-Semitism work? You know, the logic is often just like, I'm doing anti-anti-Semitism work, so anyone who criticizes it must be pro-anti-Semitism. Yeah. There have been some very large kerfuffles, and I was hoping we could summarize those very quickly as a, as a means of providing the backdrop for the conference itself, the Hijacking Memory Conference. So maybe thinking about what was happening at the Jewish Museum and also the attack on post-colonial scholars. Basically, after the BDS resolution of the German parliament was passed in 2019, we saw more people um, losing their jobs, in fact. And the first prominent one was the director of the Jewish Museum, who had to resign after the official Twitter account for the museum linked to a news article about 240 Israeli scholars who had criticized the recently passed uh, resolution against BDS and said that it was a bad idea. So he had to resign for that. And that was sort of the first of a number of these kinds of incidents of people being stripped of prizes, of people being disinvited, who either had supported BDS or had not sufficiently distanced themselves from BDS, as was the case with the Lebanese American artist Walid Rad, and, and so on and so forth. And then this in, in 2020, the Cameroonian intellectual and philosopher Ashim Bembe was invited to hold a keynote at a festival. And because the anti-Deutsche started this campaign against him, it quickly became kind of a national affair that lasted for many months, accusing him of anti-Semitism. Initially, a reading of his work were people who didn't understand his work, I would say, including Felix Klein, would say, well, he mentioned the Holocaust and South Africa, and then the South Africa and Israel in one paragraph, so he's comparing the Holocaust to Israel, which is anti-Semitic, this kind of level of guilt by association and sort of anti-Semitism bingo. And that has since then resulted in cultural institutions, the largest cultural institutions in Germany, including these sort of transnational things like the Goethe Institute, who came out as a coalition in December 2020 and, and said that the BDS resolution makes it kind of impossible for them to work internationally and that counter-boycott is not a solution to BDS, and that while they don't support BDS at all, they also don't think the counter-boycott is useful. And so since then, they have basically been called anti-Semites, by, also by the Zentralrat, who has focused their anti-anti-Semitism, right? The, the Jewish quality of life is primarily undermined by the cultural institutions who tolerate BDS or promote it. And so that has basically is the sort of story behind what has been happening this summer, where we've seen kind of a, a really dramatic escalation of all this around Documenta and the hijacking memory conference that we co-organized or that I co-organized. And even the, the Goethe Institute, some people may have seen in the news that they recently disinvited Mohammed Al-Kurd from a talk that he was going to give there. And then a number of people pulled out of the conference that was going to take place in solidarity. So even a group like them who signed on to this, who came out and said, you know, we can't work under these conditions is still subject to those kinds of pressures and is still responding to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think that the cultural institutions were aware of the extent of how political this battle is. On the one hand, I don't think they anticipated how much, how, how intense the backlash would be against them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. And so in, in, in many ways, I think that that coalition was not a success because even the elementary work of refusing to do the kind of censorship or disinvitation things that they were complaining about, that hasn't happened, right? Individual institutions have done this. And so it is, has been a very effective chilling effect on this, not to say that the Good Institute isn't responsible for its own decisions, but I think that you'd rather disinvite somebody than face a backlash for something this person may have said on social media. And and to face a loss of funding, since so much of the funding is government funding. Yes. Just to underline it, because it's so different than our American context in which there's no funding for anything. Yeah. And I, I think it's also worth just repeating, like Emily said this in the very beginning, but I think it's really important. In the background of all this, there's like an increasingly real and present danger of like 
murderous Nazi violence. And, you know, we had um, in the next town over from here in Halle, there was a, you know, a shooting attack on a synagogue three years ago on Yom Kippur. And like, this is the backdrop on which both the German state and its conservative allies that lead the institutions of the Jewish community are choosing to focus on foreigners and not on German Nazis as the, the problem for Jewish life in Germany. One thing that I will say that I learned from you all at the conference was while in the U.S., there's there's quite a lot of money. I mean, it's very big business in the U.S. to counter BDS. A lot of our communal organizations are spending a lot of money, some of which may or may not come from the Israeli government. There's certainly evidence that some of it does, you know, is, is really trying to shape public opinion around this, putting money, of course, into our elections to defeat anyone who even breathes in the direction of BDS, like APAC is currently doing. But what's interesting about Germany is that you actually don't need money to do this, that German society is doing this on its own, and that people are quite happy, actually, in like, for example, in a legal context, to take on these kinds of cases pro bono, that I remember at the conference, we asked a question, the Americans asked a question that was basically like, what are the funding networks for this kind of thing? And the answer was basically like, well, they don't need any money. I mean, a lot of the money comes from the German government. A lot of the money comes from people volunteering to, quote unquote, fight anti-Semitism. And so it's not, uh, it's not the same situation as it is in the U.S. But I, I want to transition us to talking about the conference and talking about Documenta and the fallout from this. I'd love to hear from you, Emily, just about why this conference and what, what you were hoping to achieve with it. Sure. Me and my two um, co-organizers, um, Susan uh, Nyman and uh, Stephanie Schulerspengorum. Susan runs the Einstein Forum in Berlin. She's an American-born philosopher, and Stephanie Schulerspengorum runs the Center for Anti-Semitism Research at the Technical University of Berlin, which is the oldest and most prestigious and serious uh, institute for the study of anti-Semitism in Germany. So we wanted to do this conference for a number of reasons, but in part because we had observed some of the things that were just being ignored in the fight against anti-Semitism in Germany, which was what was happening in Orban's Hungary in terms of anti-Semitic campaigns and in Poland in terms of renationalized memory laws and the fallout from that. So combining that interest in that to what was happening under Trump in the US with these sort of evangelical Zionists and you know the, the anti-Semitic evangelicals that do exist, like Pat Robertson and stuff like that, and their support for Israel because of some sort of messianic project thing. We just thought that it would be interesting to try to kind of connect the dots and see what are the ways in which remembrance of the Holocaust in particular is being instrumentalized or manipulated or changed because the idea, in especially in Europe, is that a generalized remembrance of the Holocaust and all the things that come with it, including public education and that kind of thing, will help prevent a resurgence of exclusionary nationalism, uh, racism, and anti-Semitism. And that's sort of been the kind of foundation for the, I think, liberal post-Cold War order in particular has been this idea that that is what liberal democracy, that's sort of a safeguard for liberal democracy. And yet, we were very alarmed by the many ways in which liberal democracy was being undermined and what role was being played in particular by either support for Israel or you know people who would give lip service to Holocaust remembrance, including in Germany, right? But then use it to basically weaponize a discourse or um, incite against other minorities. And so we got together to plan this conference and invited people from a truly broad spectrum of like both countries who work on different places, um, but also politically quite diverse, I think. And I think the overall point of the conference was, in fact, what we also got, which has been largely ignored in the media and maybe also wasn't even really present so much in the piece that Josh wrote, that this was really like a, a sort of self-critique of many of the people who have been very invested in Holocaust remembrance culture. This is what it's called in Germany and its ability to prevent the resurgence of exclusionary nationalism and all these things. And so 
that was kind of the the overall point, and I think also what we got. And of course, the issue of how this is done, what policies the Israeli state pursues in regards to both a kind of I mean, having a right wing settler run Yad Vashem or weaponizing anti semitism to undermine the Palestinian struggle for their for for Palestinian rights. So those were the sort of you know those were the things that we knew would be kind of controversial, but in the end, yeah, the conference was kind of discredited in advance by the people who said, before it had even started in the German media, said, oh, this conference only wants to point out to right-wing anti-Semitism. Uh, one journalist said, when are you going to do a conference on the left-wing instrumentalization of the Holocaust? And I was like, never. <laughs> um, because I don't, you know, I think you have to fight right-wing strategies. And this was a conference about the strategies and identifying them. Um, and I think that left-wing strategies should be discussed and fought about uh, among leftists, and he's not included. So, <laughs> yeah, so before the conference, there was criticism. And then after the conference, there was a severe attack on the conference, in part because two of the participants, the two um, Jewish-Polish scholars who presented on Poland, Jan Grabowski and Konstantin Gebat, a, got very upset about a presentation by Palestinian scholar uh, Tarek Bakoni, and then also went to, in the case of Jan Gabowski, went to the right-wing press, who we'd even had a presentation on in the conference because they're so instrumental to instrumentalizing anti-Semitism in Germany, and gave them an interview in which he claimed that 200 members of the German intelligentsia basically clapped in some sort of you know, it, the insinuation was that it was some sort of like rabid atmosphere um, when Israel um, was defamed and put a number of false quotations in Tariq's mouth and basically ignored the larger gist of Tariq's talk. And so that was then used and, in, and, and fortuitously for, I would say, the opponents of our conference who did not attend the conference. And also um, some people even wrote numerous articles without having attended the conference to criticize it saying that it was basically an attempt to relativize the Holocaust and it was all about colonialism, like things that were so patently untrue. But, you know, this, this is the level of how dishonest you can be when it comes to this issue. But what happened then is the conference was one week before Documenta opened. And that then became one giant snowballing issue. Documenta is certainly Germany's most important and prestigious uh, contemporary art event. It takes place every five years. Arguably, it's maybe the world's most important, next to the Venice Biennale. And it was curated, this edition was curated by an Indonesian collective called Wangrupa, whose entire approach was to invite other collectives and showcase what it would be like to develop ways of working where you share resources in different ways as a sort of alternative economy both and in other ways. But um, so a very different approach to what the art market is usually used to of like not big names, but collectives inviting sub-collectives. And in the end, there were 1,500 artists involved. So Documenta opened a week after hijacking memory, but Documenta had already been bogged by accusations of anti-Semitism since the beginning of the year, which started were started by a basically one-man show in Kassel, where Documenta takes place in West Germany, calling itself the Alliance Against Anti-Semitism Kassel. I think he's an insurance salesman in his late 50s who wears IDF t-shirts and like just loves the Israeli military and has said transphobic and racist things and is generally not somebody who you should just respectfully cite. But he made some claims against the curators and artistic team of Documenta, namely that they had signed letters that put them in the proximity of BDS, some open letters, including the uh, letter against apartheid and uh, another open letter by artists in December 2020, where they basically just criticized the BDS resolution. But so that became, this was picked up by the big German newspapers, repeated without any kind of fact checking. There were other claims made about some of the artists, the Palestinian artists, that were completely false and totally preposterous. And then this became a scandal in January already. So none of the accusations, apart from the fact that there were people who had signed open letters that were in support of Palestinian rights that used the word apartheid in the case of one of the letters, were true. And, and, and if you don't think those things are anti-Semitic, there was no anti-Semitism at that point. 
But in June, when Documenta opened, a week after the Hijacking Memory Conference, there was a banner was displayed on the central square in Kassel, a massive banner. I don't know what the American measurements would be, but eight by 12 meters, <laughs> sorry, huge, by a, an Indonesian uh, activist kind of agitprop art collective called Taring Padi. And it was a work from 2002, which included a, in my opinion, and in most people's opinion, I think, I think there's no disagreement about this, in fact, a kind of classical anti-Semitic caricature of an Orthodox Jew with fangs. And so this work from 2002, which was kind of the symbolic, symbolic image of these protests that brought down the Suwarto dictatorship and included a kind of, it's called People's Justice. It has on the left hand, has the bad guys, which is all the intelligence services that colluded with the Suwarto dictatorship, the Australian, the Israeli, the American CIA as pigs, and then on the right side, the kind of people who will get justice. It's sort of like a massive mural drawn by dozens of different artists and had been displayed all in various places, but never in Europe. And then it was put up in Kasu the day that Documenta opened. And then the next day, somebody discovered the Orthodox Jew in this massive picture. And then basically what happened then is that the narrative became this happened because of the accusations of anti-Semitism in January weren't taken seriously, the BDS accusations. Here is evidence that if you tolerate proximity to BDS, you get classical anti-Semitism. And hijacking memory is part of this anti-Semitic BDS normalizing conspiracy, basically. So Emily, you've been now at the center of this. The attacks have really focused specifically on you. There was a video that was leaked of you orienting. I mean, actually, I'll let you speak about about the video and the leaks and the attacks, because I think that that's a very particular dimension. And then I will want to kind of zoom out and bring Michael into this and talk about kind of the implications of this and what what we're learning. So about 10 days ago or two weeks ago, the director of Documenta, which always has kind of a managing director, but the curators are in fact responsible for the edition. And so she's German, Sabine Schaumann. She published the fact that me and my team of a few people had been advising Documenta on how to deal with the accusations of anti-Semitism in January. And she did this against our uh, agreement and certainly in violation, I think, of our contract without telling us in advance. And then because the media had spent the last month basically saying what's going on, you know, there was this anti-Semitic banner, it was taken down, there was an apology by the artists, there was an apology by the curators, um, but it was not enough. There was a parliamentary hearing where the managing director of the Central Council for the Jews called for German cultural institutions to undergo a process of self-cleansing and basically lumped hijacking memory and the people who run it, who ran the conference, who organized it into this process where they need to be reviewed if their jobs are, if they're actually the right people to keep their jobs. So what happened when my name was published was that the conspiracy became, oh, look at this person, organized hijacking memory, was thanked by the cultural institutions in December 2020 who came out against the BDS resolution. At the bottom of their statement, they thanked a number of people for advice and whatnot, among them me. And then now is being revealed by the disgraced director of Documenta, who three days later was forced to resign, has been outed as the person who was advising Documenta, which was not entirely fair, I think, because my role was not to look at any of the works or review for anti-Semitic content, but was in fact to actually program, primarily to program a series of debates and discussions after the accusations in January that could maybe try to bring together the various perspectives, the German perspective on post-colonialism, that it doesn't recognize the specificity of anti-Semitism vis-a-vis racism and the Holocaust vis-a-vis colonial crimes, and would also look at anti-Palestinian racism because the artists in Documenta who'd been accused of anti-Semitism felt that this was a manifestation of anti-Palestinian racism, and I would agree. So we had kind of, our main job was to kind of program a response to this, but it sounded like I was responsible for checking on anti-Semitism. And then a video was leaked in which I was speaking to guides of Documenta who had been trained for a month, including a three-day schooling by the 
Anne Frank Educational Center on anti-Semitism. I was there to share my perspective on the diverging view of Israel-Palestine and anti-Semitism. But th- when the video was leaked, the Süddeutsche, who it was leaked to, basically said, here is how the Documenta guides are schooled on anti-Semitism and attacked my my perspective on, on anti-Semitism. I mean, it was basically just trying to explain what the various viewpoints are on things, because I was explaining to the guides how they could maybe try to think about talking to visitors who might be upset by some of the content. And by some of the content, I meant, I actually named the examples that I knew. There was, a, there's a Palestinian artist who refers to settler colonialism in her project. And so I explained that settler colonialism in the German context is viewed as delegitimizing Israel and is then necessarily anti-Semitic, but that there are scholars who use this term as a historical analytical one, and that it's not just a slur, because other countries are settler colonies too, and they also happen to be democracies in the case of Australia or the US. Like it's not just a slur, it's a description of something. And then I said the third position is, you know, that Israel could both be a settler colonial Uh, have settler colonial aspects and have been a country that gave refuge to Jews fleeing persecution. So this was the nature of what I was doing, but this is considered completely unacceptable in Germany, right? This is considered, I think the head of the Deutsche Israelische Gesellschaft, which is a main German-based pro-Israel group, accused me of brainwashing poor youth and said there was a big market for this kind of work and I should get like advice on how to invest my income in this kind of thing. So this is at the point where people started to notice that maybe the focus on me and also trying to sort of discredit me as both as an anti-Semite, maybe going off in the wrong direction. And then what happened right after that was, I mean, basically there was like three or four days or a week where there were a bit, maybe 80 articles written about me. And one of them, in fact, in the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung claimed that I was close to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Because I, according to the article, worked there until 2015. In fact, I wrote one article for Al-Akbar, co-wrote one article for Al-Akbar, which was a newly founded and exciting left-wing newspaper in 2006, and had worked as an editor at Al-Akbar English, which had a separate and independent editorial policy from 2010 to 2012, at which point I had left also over disagreements with the politics of the newspaper, which had become increasingly pro-Assad after the uprising in Syria basically split the Arab left. So then suddenly I was now not only just like a bad person and bad at you know ruining the kids, but I was also close to an illegal, in Germany, organization, a terror organization. And so then this became kind of a more serious issue uh, where I have since I'm suing these Newspapers. The first newspaper I, uh, I I sent an injunction to my lawyer sent an injunction to Die Welt immediately accepted to publish a correction. The Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung has not done that yet. Their editor in chief actually watched my training video, my two hour training video, and wrote a review about it. Like they're they're so obsessive. I'm sure someday they'll be like, hey, maybe this was a little much. I don't know why we went after this person <laughs> and maybe we should think about it. But yeah, for now I've joined the ranks of um, people. It's a humbling experience who have been kind of caught up in the machinery of conspiratorial anti-antisemitism of the German variety. And so uh, I'm in good company. Yeah. So I, I just want to zoom out just a little bit because I do want to think about also why why you are so dangerous right now, why this focus on you. And I think that there is something here. When I think about when things started to change in the United States in terms of the conversation around Israel-Palestine, and of course, we're not so far down this road. I mean, there's still a lot of power arrayed against us, but I think we're in a fundamentally different position than the European communities, both in Germany and in the UK. And when I think about what is going on here, I really think about the fact that there is a homegrown American-Jewish left opposition to what is happening both in our community and in and in the government apparatuses that, that claim to be representing American Jewish interests. So I don't know. I mean, there's a way in which the German community is, is so fragmented and so strange, the German Jewish community, that it becomes difficult to gather this group. But I do think that you, Emily, have been sort of a central address for some of these things for a long time. 
And I wonder if you have any thoughts or Michael, maybe we could even start with you for coming from the outside about what is at work here? What is the the thing that makes Emily in particular a target in this moment and, and why that's important to think about? Okay. So I think there's, I mean, there's all kinds of different things at play here. Definitely a big factor is that there's, you know, a healthy urge in Germany among many people to be extremely vigilant against anti-Semitism. That's, of course, you know, a, a good thing. But it's come to be channeled, at least in ways that are unthreatening um, to, to, to the status quo. You know, what, what Emily was just describing is like a huge amount of effort being put into this kind of witch hunt, finding, you know, any shred to, to prove that, that Emily and Ron Grupa and everyone involved in Documenta and, and so on and so forth, that these are all like dangerous anti-Semites. And Germans might say like, well, of course, everyone knows that Nazis are bad. Yeah, but like, why aren't these efforts being put into uncovering them in the same way? And and why why aren't the, the same standards actually being applied within within German society where where anti-Semitism is more dangerous? So like one one of the things that came up in the in the lead up to to Documenta was the connection of these artists to a cultural educational center um, in in Palestine, a Palestinian institution named after after Khalil Sakakini, who was a, a progressive educator, who had like a couple of positive notes in his diaries about the Nazis. And this was given as a reason for anyone associated with this institution to be considered like an anti-Semite. And if that alone as a pattern of recognizing dangerous people were applied within Germany, like a lot of people would be out of a job. There's, you know, major institutions here named after actual former Nazis or even more after people who expressed clear anti-Semitism or that kind of sympathy towards anti-Semitic movements. Like that is, was not unusual here, obviously, for a certain generation or for several certain generations. You know, you have, you have like all this commemoration of people like Luther, who was, you know, a virulent anti-Semite with, who has contributed so much to modern anti-Semitism and to the, you know, early modern uh, anti-Jewish uh, sentiment that led up to modern anti-Semitism. He's honored in, in so many ways. There's a, a city, like the city that he worked or lived in was, is, is actually named after him now. It's called Lutherstadt Wittenberg. And Richard Wagner, you know, there's a, a, a central plaza named after him here in Leipzig because he, I think, was from Leipzig. Was, all these figures who were implicated in anti-Semitism in significant ways are still honored institutionally. And you don't see people who are affiliated with that kind of stuff being demonized the way that someone affiliated with the Sakakini Center is. So this is clearly like not the same standard being applied. And I don't know, this might go back to the early days of denazification where there there actually was like a, a big degree of solidarity amongst the Germans. They didn't want Nazis to be persecuted because they, I guess, mostly felt they were complicit in one way or another and that this was against them as well. And it seems to me that I mean, of course, Germany has gone through massive and serious and deep, you know, processes regarding this since, you know, the, the late 40s. I don't want to diminish that. It's one of the reasons I live here. It's like, it's it's definitely not the way it used to be. But I think there's some impulse there that's that's similar to like not shake the boat too much. And when you have people to target who can be construed as not part of us, people who don't have a lot of institutional power, you know, especially refugees and other uh, migrants, but also just anyone who's marginalized, even just as as a leftist, you know, the left is marginal here, is a much more convenient target. And then when you have Jewish people coming in and taking a position that is contrary to the official version of here is how we distance ourselves from anti-Semitism, like that's obviously going to set off some kind of dissonance and some some kind of need to like make it perfectly clear that people like Emily or or like me or other progressive Jews aren't entitled to speak as Jews even, not even to speak for the Jewish people, just to speak as Jews. Like, no, we're we're the enemy of the Jew in heavy quotation marks as understood by German society. We can't be allowed to speak for this collective in, in any implied way. Just, just, yeah. I, I would just like to add to that. I think one of the accusations that was made against me in the last few days was that I was importing discourse, left academic discourse from the US and Israel. This was in the Schlinger press that was basically undermining the German like status quo sense of itself um, and that this was particularly dangerous. I was also called a well-known author in the post-colonial milieu 
But I think there's two things. And one of them is an Israeli friend remarked a couple of years ago that Israel seemed to be a Holocaust happy ending for Germans. And so the reality of the occupation and of, I would say, the increasing fascization of Israeli politics and the post-Oslo consensus basically no longer being a reality at all um, for some time, that is something that has to be vehemently denied for Germans. And that just means basically if you name a reality, then you're an anti-Semite, right? And it has also become a thing where this, this sort of image of the state of Israel is what has to be protected more than actual Jewish life, right? And, uh, and you'll hear this from some of the functionaries, German functionaries, who will call Israel the Jew among the states. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, the second dynamic, I think, Rivka Brown from Vashti magazine in the UK said this, and I think it really captures it well. She said that nothing scares the right more than the prospect of Jewish people withdrawing their collective consent to be used as a battering ram against other minorities, refusing to accept that our safety must come at the expense of others. And so I think the dual aspect, both in terms of like the image of Israel, the foreign policy of Germany, the Staatsraison of Germany, because Germans' reason of state is Israel's security, as Angela Merkel Mm. said it, and both the threat posed by left-wing Jews in Germany who oppose the policy of, let's say, the Zentralrat, which appeals to the moral authority of the perpetrator heirs and their institutions in order to settle their disagreements with other minorities and with Jews that they don't like all the time. If, if they're willing to throw us under the bus, then the Germans will be the most gleeful to do that. And so as soon as they're given any kind of permission to do that and add to that a kind of anti-left development that obviously pleases people who have an anti-progressive agenda in the, in the many ways that exist being anti-environmental change and using anti-Semitism as a battering ram against that, criticism of capitalism being considered anti-Semitic, all these things. That these things together, that's where perhaps I, as someone who's really not that important, but feel very much committed to Jewish well-being and Jewish safety and believe that Jewish life in, in Europe, you know, needs to be in solidarity with other minorities and that we can deal with anti-Semitism and racism and other things like that without calling the cops on each other. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that strike me from this. And then one is that really, I mean, we already know the ways that philo-Semitism and anti-Semitism kind of come together. I mean, part of what I hear both of you saying, Michael, you're saying on the one hand, you see the extent to which Germans think of Jews not as Germans in their willingness to attack them for certain kinds of things. And I think, Emily, you're saying almost a similar thing, basically talking about the ways that Jews are only allowed to be ambassadors of a certain kind of politics that benefits German policy, especially towards migrants, but not not only. And also the ways that Jews become avatars for the state of Israel, which, of course, is an anti-Semitic idea that Jews in the diaspora are agents of the Israeli state. So there is this very interesting way, of course, that all of this circles back around into basic anti-Semitism, but then also interesting ways in which the idea of the perfect victim in the form of the Jew, and this is something that Hannah Tuberi talked about really wonderfully at the conference, at the Hijacking Memory Conference, the way that the Jew as perfect victim makes it so that um, migrants, particularly from the Arab world, again, are perpetrators as opposed to victims of uh, discrimination in their own right. So all of that, I, I think, is is very worth just underlining based on everything that, that you all have said. I, I, I want to close just with one question, which is sort of like, where do we go from here? I mean, I've heard different people talking about the attacks of the last couple months and, and saying, you know, maybe we should cool it or, you know, like just trying to understand what would be the best way to interact with the the German political situation just now. And I've also heard you, Emily, say like, no, this is proof that that what we're doing is working and and this is kind of a positive development. But I, I guess I'm sort of wondering, like, where is the opening? Where do we go from here? 
Um, well, my sense is, and I think it's always an interesting thing to keep in mind and worry about, is how much backlash can we tolerate, right? I mean, I think that there is a full authoritarian backlash now underway in Germany, where the actual demands now are that the BDS resolution, which was not legally binding, now be enforced, right? Either become a law and that the Zentralrat also be involved in the personnel, like the, the decisions of who runs cultural institutions and stuff like that. So we have sort of, maybe we've contributed to to the backlash is something that I would ask myself, self-critically, because I'd hate to, you know, win the battle and lose the war. And I worry about that in terms of my own approach to things. At the same time, I don't feel like we have a choice then to continue doing the work that we're doing, in part because I do feel that the way that anti-Semitism is being weaponized is being used to undermine any kind of progressive policy or project. So we can't let that happen because already I think we see a kind of belated Americanization of our political culture in Germany. It's like lagging 20 years. So we're basically right after 9-11 now. Documenta was 9-11, um, kind of. I mean, I'm not exaggerating, <laughs> but like it does have that feeling. Like the Patriot Act coming up. They won't invade anywhere maybe, but so that's the one aspect. I do think we have no choice but to continue. And, and the main thing is to fight anti-Semitism because the situation of Jews in Germany is different than the situation of Jews in the US where it's kind of normal to be Jewish and it isn't that way in Germany. And anti-Semitism is, is a serious problem. And in order to fight it, which is also something that I'm committed to, I do think we also have to fight its instrumentalization. So basically doing the work that is not being done is our job. And the other part of that is just doing the work of protecting the communities that we're involved with and care about and building coalitions with them. And I think that we'd be doing that anyway. If we can't work with cultural institutions anymore, then we won't. Like, I don't care. You know, if, if Germany wants to destroy its soft power globally by like making only German art allowed, be my guest. Like I'm not invested in German soft power at all. And I'm ungrateful, frankly, for the politics of redemption. And I think I will continue to be that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like we, we, you know, we really don't have much of a choice. And I think, like, there's not just specific to Germany. We're in, we're in a moment of major multiple crisis um, in in the world. And this is another of the many reflections of that. And more specifically, of you know the fact that the situation in Israel Palestine is getting worse. Any any idea that things there are like, you know, headed towards some kind of peaceful democratic resolution. That idea is, is kind of losing anything in reality that could give it substance by the day and has been for the last few years. That's a big part of what's going on here, that the, the situation is becoming much, much more symbolic because the reality doesn't support the symbolism that Germany needs. And this crisis is making clear where things stand. It's making clear that this German idea of anti-anti-Semitism and of supporting Israel as, as a national project, that this is a deeply anti-progressive stance. And that these, these past couple of weeks have really made that, I think, much clearer to anyone who's like willing to see this. Like there are people who are unwilling to see this. I'm not, I don't believe that this is going to just like make all the good Germans open their eyes and be like, oh, damn, we made a mistake. We're going to turn around and change now. But I think it does make much clearer what taking sides on this on this issue means and implies and have who you you're... seen more backlash like backlash to the backlash i mean like are there people who are who are speaking up who didn't before definitely some like there were some people i mean even the same guy that i, I think we didn't mention by name but emily mentioned a couple of times or at least once this um the head of the german uh, israeli society who um attacked emily like a couple days before that like, he was he was defending her because some of these smears were so obviously uh disgusting other people from that spectrum also which doesn't mean that they're changing sides but just like the, there is like there was there were some clear moments at least there's a limit for them yeah there, some lines were crossed even for for people in that kind of space and i mean i think we'll Time will tell, but when you look back at the last couple of years, things like the School for Unlearning Zionism and, and the, the Mbembe affair were big eye-opening moments for a lot of people in Germany because they're they're really like if you're not really deeply steeped in in the discourse that led to this, it doesn't make any sense to shut down an Israeli uh, education project to tar a major African philosopher in that way. These things do make people go like, "Huh, what, what's going on here?" And I think that's something that has potential 
to at least sharpen the opposition to these uh, to these tendencies. I'll say I'll say one more thing. Yeah, I think that the German model of kind of reinventing itself as a sort of new form of German superiority, right? It's sort of like the sort of negative exceptionalism of having been the most genocidal is a relevant problem for for everyone who's involved in the battle for a better world or you know against white supremacy for example because i mean obviously that's not the condition in many other places but it's also a way that this kind of system can in fact redeem itself and it raises a lot of questions about what we actually want in terms of concessions right like if you're going to be the bad guys, but you're going to use that to basically kind of project that onto other people and turn it into a, a civilizational fault line where we, the Germans, have become civilized by virtue of committing genocide, and the people who are uncivilized are the ones who have not yet recognized their genocidal intentions toward Jews, which is Palestinians, Muslims, people from the global south, then you know it sort of raises questions in general about what our demands are politically, right? In terms of uh, structural reparations and changes and things like that. And so I think the German model as a negative model, but also one with positive aspects is something that, you know, we can talk about forever, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. This has been another episode of Jewish Currents podcast on the nose. Thank you to Michael and Emily for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, leave us a review. And if you liked it, you might also want to donate to Jewish Currents. You can find a link to do that at our website, jewishcurrents.org. And now's a great time to subscribe because you will get our summer 2022 issue, which deals a lot with psychoanalysis. It deals with a deep dive into the meaning of apartheid and a lot of other really, really great stuff. So please, please subscribe, donate, and tell your friends about the Jewish Currents podcast. Thanks a lot. See you next time.